This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, my name is Lucy Diavolo, and I'm a politics editor at Teen Vogue. I'm also the editor of No Planet B, a Teen Vogue guide to the climate crisis, a collection of some of our most prescient climate coverage published by our friends at Haymarket Books. Tonight, we're here to celebrate the book's release by talking with just a few of the contributors who worked, whose work made this collection possible. Like much of what we do at Teen Vogue, this collection is a testament to the collaborative efforts of staff and freelancers like our guests tonight. So let's meet them now. First, Dr. Jen M. Jackson, Ph.D., is a queer, gender-flux, androgynous Black woman, an abolitionist, a lover of all Black people, and an assistant professor at Syracuse University in the Department of Political Science. Their primary research is in Black politics with a focus on group threat, gender and sexuality, political behavior, and social movements. Jackson also holds affiliate positions in African-American studies, women and gender studies, and LGBT studies. They are a senior research associate at the Campbell Public Affairs Institute, at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University, and the author of the forthcoming book, Black Women Taught Us from Random House Press, due out next year. You can find them on Twitter at Jen M. Jackson, PhD. They're also a Teen Vogue columnist writing Speak on it for the the site and the author of People of Color Deserve Credit for Their Work to Save the Environment, included in No Planet B. Thanks for being here, Jen. Thanks for having me. Second, Kim Kelly, Philly-based freelance journalist, author, and organizer. She's a labor columnist for Teen Vogue, writing No Class, and she also has written for The Baffler. Her work on labor, class, and politics and culture has appeared in The New Republic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Columbia Journalism Review, Esquire, just to name a few. She is the author of Fight Like Hell, a forthcoming book of intersectional labor history. You might know her from Twitter as at Grim Kim, and she's the author of Climate Disaster as a Labor Issue, Here's Why, in No Planet B. Thanks for being here, Kim. Hell yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> Finally, Maya Wickler is an anthropologist, organizer, and writer whose work has appeared in Teen Vogue and Vice. She's directing a short documentary film with support from the North Face featuring the Gwich'in women who are leading the fight to protect the Arctic refuge. Maya uh, was recently selected as a National Geographic Early Career Explorer to document cross-border stories and the threats to wild salmon from mining in north northern British Columbia. Originally from Philadelphia, she's currently living in Vancouver Island while pursuing a PhD in political ecology at the University of Victoria. Her research focuses on memory as a tool of resistance and resilience in the face of corporate abuse, specifically related to deforestation and the climate crisis. You can follow her on Twitter at Maya Wickler. That's M-A-I-A-W-I-K-L-E-R. And she actually has a piece in all four sections of No Planet B, including the fossil fuel industry is worsening the global plastics crisis. I traveled to the Arctic to witness climate disaster firsthand. Teens are suing the U.S. government over climate change and four activists explain why migrant justice is climate justice. Thanks for joining us, Maya. Thank you, Lucy. 
I want to thank all three of you for being here tonight and for your incredible work for Teen Vogue and beyond. Just as we have three guests, the book has three sections, reporting, activism, and intersectionality. Tonight, we're going to talk through these ideas and how they form the foundation of climate justice work and reporting on it, and especially how they're implemented by young people in the movement. So Maya, I'd like to start with you. Your reporting for Teen Vogue is excellent. Uh, and we know that the climate justice movement relies on science as a basis uh, for its advocacy, whether it's data about rising temperatures or rising seas. But we also know that local community-based information plays a key role in activism and organizing. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your approach to climate reporting and what you make space for as the real factual meat of the story. Mm-hmm. I think that's such an important question that should really be, there should be much more dialogue about that in the way that media is covering the climate crisis and the way that um, influential folks are affecting policy and climate action to be really thinking about what is informing that understanding. And I think at the root of it is science and colonialism go hand in hand. If we look at the history of science, it really served as an extension of of an ideology of white supremacy, and it rationalized um, the displacement and dispossession of indigenous peoples from their lands. It rationalized a lot of environmental destruction in the first place with really narrow-minded ways of looking at the environment that didn't recognize even the intersections that exist in an ecosystem and the ways in which everything is so deeply connected. And so I think it's so important to consider these histories that are informing the way that we are reporting and the way that we are gathering research and weaving together these stories that are supposed to equip and mobilize the public with the knowledge that they need to be informed and really participating in a functioning democracy. And I think that there's a lot of question around objectivity right now and what that means and how you do that ethically. And science is heavily viewed as inherently objective, which I think is a fallacy. I think that what is more objective is recognizing our own personal histories and identities that inform and shape the way that we interpret and understand information. And so I think if we are looking for stronger objectivity, then that starts with transparency within ourselves and within the people who are shaping these narratives and providing this information and data. And something that has always really been profound to me when I'm on <laughs> let's see, when I'm on the ground reporting and doing my research and gathering this information is that, you know, if you if you think about a fisheries person or someone who has gone to school for a specific, like for forestry or something like that. Maybe they've been in school learning about that topic for four to eight years maximum before they're then put into the field with the label of an expert and given all the tools and power to influence and shape the way that that field looks. Whereas if you're focusing on the testimonies from community members, they are on the ground in those places. To me, those are some of the best scientists. They're witnessing every single day. They're observing every single day. They are 
not only having their own knowledge of place that is within their lifetime, they're also carrying the knowledge of thousands of years with them from observation and understanding of land, place, and waters and how everything is so deeply connected. So the the strongest and most astute observations on climate change I've heard from community members because they so deeply know they're so deeply in relationship and, um, and especially elders. And so I think that when we're looking at reporting on climate change and the climate crisis, we have to be amplifying community voices because I really believe that, um, testimony from the ground is an expert voice and it should be given just as much platform and credence as science. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Jen, I want to turn to you because your piece in the book is in a similar theme here, um, in particular about how a lot of communities of color have done this kind of climate justice work for a long time, often as a matter of survival. Um, I think that's a great reminder that a facts-first approach can't just be limited to meteorological data. You know, we need this accurate historical record of the movement and of the land, like Maya said, so we can build on what's really already known. So could you speak to how that history can continue to inform the climate movement in your mind? Absolutely. So first, uh, I want to first just like snap Maya real quick because all that was a word um, and just echo and reiterate that absolute this is a conversation around settler colonialism, this is a conversation around capitalism, this is a conversation around um, the ways that we live up underneath white supremacy, which does not incentivize care for communities of color, care for communities at the margins of identity. And so um, when thinking about this question, the first thing I thought about is the fact that the night before uh, Martin Luther King was killed, he was talking to sanitation workers in Memphis after two Two Memphis sanitation workers were crushed at a, a, a factory. And folks don't often talk about the fact that MLK was also doing work, not just on economics, um, not just on racial segregation and injustice, but also on the climate. And he saw that climate and environmental racism issues were very much so linked to Black folks' liberation and survival, right? And so this is 1968. Um, and I, I think that we have to have more... Um, cogent and clear-headed conversations around the ways that, as Maya is saying, folks in communities um, are the experts on their experiences uh, with climate issues and environmental racism, and specifically how folks are learning to survive despite the state's uh, inability and uh, desire not to care for them, right? So I think about um, when I was working with young people in Chicago and they would tell me about how they could tell that they had uh, certain minerals in their water that they shouldn't drink and they would just avoid a certain water fountain at school. And they would just figure this out based on the taste of the water. And I would talk to other people and they would say, yeah, that's a thing. And it was kind of this lay knowledge that folks were handing around communities to say, you know, when the water tastes like this, you don't drink it. Right. It's probably got something in it. And we don't talk enough about how uh, folks at the multiple margins of identity have to make these choices because the state does not show up um, in the ways that it's supposed to. Right. In the ways that it's codified to in our Constitution. Um, so for me, I'm talking about history. What I really want to focus on is the fact that. Uh, Folks in communities who have been affected by um, our governments and the larger kind of global crisis around climate and environmental racism 
have the knowledge and the wherewithal and the know-how about how to navigate these systems and are just often not tapped or respected enough um, to actually be included in the conversation. And so I'm really hoping that, you know, after, if there is an after for the moment that we're living through, that we really start to think more critically about what it means to include um, folks, not including them after we've made decisions, but also having folks uh, be the decision makers about what the conditions of their life will be and how they'll proceed um, under these uh, conditions of the state. Totally. I think you really hit on a really key point there, which is a sort of bottom up framework for any kind of organizing work and that has to apply to climate as well. Um, you wrote a great piece for us last year, Jen, also about you know how we name movements and how we yeah. describe protests and riots and things like that. You know, I yeah. wonder if you have any thoughts on how that sentiment applies to the climate justice movement, where you know we know there's a lot of efforts on the other side to sort of reconstruct or misconstrue facts, um, not just about, you know, whether or not it's even happening, but about who's really being affected and what that means. Yeah. So I feel very strongly about this question. Um, so I think what I will say is that um, what we've seen in uh, climate justice work and just like many other kind of movements and um, policy initiatives and other forms of social organizing that emerge is that there's often um, kind of the, the kind of set of responses, the menu of responses that folks have who are outside of those movements. And unfortunately, um, what we've seen a lot of with climate justice is a lot of denial, right? Um, gaslighting of communities um, and kind of it's a part of the larger um, framework of, of if this does not affect me directly or if I cannot tell what the material effects are um, to me, then it may not actually be as much of an issue. This background is working me right now. Uh, <laughs> so I think for me, what I want to say about this kind of how we name movements and how we um, acknowledge the work that folks are already doing is to say that we have to be accountable. Right. We have to be accountable to one another and we have to be accountable to who we say we are and what we say we're going to do. Right. I think that there are often times where folks will say, I care about the environment and I care about the climate, but they may feel like they don't have enough control or enough knowledge or they don't know where to start. Um, or they may feel like it's just too distant from from their community or from the way that they live their day to day lives. And so what I think is when we talk about naming, we first have to admit that there's absolutely a problem, right? We absolutely are living in a moment where we are teetering, right? Um, we had this kind of in 2020, we were focused on COVID, but meanwhile, the world is also burning. And meanwhile, we have plastics in our water to the point where we are watching whole whole uh, species disappear off of the face of the earth, right? We have these things happening simultaneously. And this idea that we can only focus on one thing at a time, right, is that's, an, that's a privileged idea. That's a privileged position to be in, the idea that we're just going to focus on this one crisis right now. The problem is there are many of us, there are many folks who have no choice but to name the various, the myriad concerns, the myriad threats that they're facing. And for folks in privileged positions to say one thing at a time or we'll get to that next, right? That's not actually doing justice um, to the folks who are living through this crisis right now. And it's not being accountable in the ways that we often say we want to be or we intend to be. So for me, this misconstrual, this conversation is also about um, taking full stock of where we sit and our own privilege and our own complicity and what we can do 
to actually hold ourselves accountable to others and to ourselves. Absolutely. I mean, it's a big question and these sort of dynamics the, between the you know, question of systemic change and the question of personal responsibility is where the conversation gets lost a lot of the time. Um, Maya, I want to turn back to you because I know you have a background in organizing. So I wanted to ask just kind of generally how that informs your work on the climate. You know, I know you touched on this earlier with your uh, discussing how, you know, informed perspectives from actually impacting communities is the essence of it. Um, but I wonder specifically uh, if your background in organizing helps you in your work at all. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I, I think that I always keep in mind that the antithesis to extractivism is relationships and community. And so media and storytelling in the larger public discourse has a history of being extractive and perpetuating really harmful narratives and stereotypes. And so I think that especially with writing and reporting on issues of justice, it's absolutely essential to have an ethic that is anti-extractive. And to me, that is grounded in relationships. And that's what organizing has really taught me. I've been involved in different community organizing spaces for over 10 years now. And to me, that was my journalism school. I never went to journalism school. My background is um, in anthropology. I got a master's in that and now my PhD in political ecology. And so oftentimes I'm asked um, how I am writing these stories if I didn't go to journalism school. And I really think it's because I know how to be in relationship and I know how to be accountable. And all the stories that I have done for Teen Vogue, it all came from personal relationships for, you know, I had friends who were at the border involved with the occupation that was happening there earlier in the fall this year. I had friends who were involved in the, all the youth movements that I featured in that piece. And so it's every single story that's amplified our personal relationships. And um, so there's a level of accountability and I believe transparency and accuracy with having that depth of a relationship to really elicit people's stories and what people are experiencing. And I think the other dimension of organizing too, and this power of relationship and storytelling is um, really compelling people to act through empathy and through that, that, you know, an additional component of accountability. And so when I'm in community or when I'm hearing a story, I really look at that as I'm bearing witness to somebody's truth, to somebody's lived experience. And when anybody is reading a story and reading this reporting, they are then bearing witness to that person's truth. And once you have witnessed that experience or that injustice, you are then accountable to it. And so I really hope that by having reporting done in a way that is more based in relationships and accountability, that that can then translate to the reader as well and really use it as a tool for change and really use that as a way to mobilize folks and just elicit that deeper empathy and really reconnect us as this collective community because capitalism and colonialism functions and thrives off of individualism. So if we can have that be a foundation in the way that we're reporting and telling stories, I think it's absolutely essential. And I completely credit it to everything I've learned in organizing and being in community. 
Amazing. Yeah. I mean, and that's also relevant with what you were saying earlier about that tension between this sort of mythical objectivity in journalism and, you know, forms of subjectivity that are actually accountable to the subject the and, you know, the writer and the subject. Um, Kim, I'd love to turn to you as we discuss trying to get out of individualist mindsets through organizing, uh, because your piece in the book makes the case for climate justice as a labor issue. I wonder if you could give us some basic insight into that conversation. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, actually, I'm so grateful to Jen for mentioning Martin Luther King Jr. and the striking sanitation workers in 68 in Memphis, because that's such a good example of how how fractured in many ways the labor movement can be because we have on on one side we have MLK being a union man we have this legacy of progressive radical you know incredible movement for working class liberation but we also have a legacy of racism and xenophobia and you know the current manifestation of that right now we have police unions the ice union we have prison guards like we have there, there are many sides there's a very big tent really big umbrella the labor movement is not a monolith and you can't really expect a group that is that i mean the working class is most you know it's a huge group and obviously people have different perspectives different politics different i mean things they care about you know so when it comes to the climate crisis, you would think, obviously, this is a big deal, like it impacts workers because workers are people and the world is on fire. And you do have a lot of labor unions and leaders and rank and file members and just people who care who understand that and are really you know, in support of ambitious programs like the Green New Deal and understand the importance of pivoting to renewable energy and creating good green union jobs. and. You know, there's a huge force. There, there are some big unions behind that. But there is also on this other side, there are folks who are worried that their members, their people will be left behind because we're talking about industries like manufacturing, the extractive industries, fossil fuels, like the, the West Virginia coal miner has been turned into a caricature at this point that's generally used for political points. But these are real people who have been doing the same job, this very difficult, crushing, terrible job for a very long time. And if you, you know, some of the solutions that we've seen are let's send a bunch of people down to Appalachia and teach workers how to code. Let's just throw a couple things at the wall, see what sticks. That's not going to cut it. And that's not going to get broad support from people that you need to really foster this mass movement towards saving the goddamn planet. <laughs> the idea of a just transition is something that has taken root. And the just part of it is really important. Just transitioning over away from fossil fuels towards more renewable energy, like just pivoting like that, you're going to leave a lot of people behind. There are a lot of jobs that are going to be lost. There are a lot of families that are going to suffer if you take this step without consulting. Like Jen said before, when you take these steps without consulting the community, when you make decisions for people instead of with people, and instead of following the lead of people who are directly impacted, this is where the harm happens. And this is a reason why initially when the Green Nose Deal uh, you know, made its big splash, the AFL-CIO was publicly they weren't really down. They were not very supportive because they felt that they had been left out of the conversation and that some of their members and their workers had been 
kind of just tossed aside. And obviously you're not going to get anywhere if people feel like that. You can't leave people behind and expect them to rally behind your cause. You can't tell someone your job is killing the planet. The way that you feed your children, the way you take care of your family, that's bad. We're done. That's canceled. We're moving on without offering them something better, something sustainable. That's one of the key provisions of, I mean, I'm not like a big Green New Deal stand or whatever, but it is a useful framework to look at these things, especially if in a labor context, because one of the important parts of it was the jobs guarantee. Now saying, I think of someone like my dad, who has been a construction worker forever. He's He loves the woods. He loves nature. He's not thrilled about tearing it up to put bills, to, to pay his bills, but there hasn't been anything offered to people like him. Like he, when he, the last time he came over my house, he was talking about how oh, people just want me to go build windmills now. Like what the, what is that about? And that's not just saying, okay, we need to go do something else without offering a path and a framework and a guarantee that you're going to get the same pay and the same benefits and your life isn't going to change in a detrimental way. You're just going to become part of this solution instead of being scapegoated as the problem. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and we can't just dismiss the concerns of folks who are in this predicament because, like, workers need to survive. We're dealing with capitalism. Capitalism has given us very few choices. There's the decline of manufacturing and these traditional working class stronghold industries. Like, that has hit people hard. It's not just a political bargaining chip. You know, Joe Biden refusing to ban fracking, yeah, that sucks. And I also understand why he's sticking to that for political reasons, for some practical reasons, it's obviously we all know it's very complicated and there are a lot of lives hanging in the balance. It's not just people in labor who are worried about their jobs. It's all of us because there's only one planet. So it has been encouraging to see that there has been movement towards you know, towards embracing a greener future and towards pushing for these jobs and towards organizing new sectors. I mean, the green energy sector is barely unionized. We can work on that now. Like, there are things that can be done and there are more conversations that need to be had. And I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but this is important, right? <laughs> and so that's kind of that's kind of the tension there, right? Like, we all know that there the vast majority of people know and accept that there's a problem, but we're also living under capitalism. And those two things are not, it's not lining up as well as it could. Definitely. I don't think it's any secret that capitalism presents a lot of challenges for anybody trying to organize around climate justice. Um, I think what you were saying about, um, you know, fundamentally like the old organizing adage of trying to meet people where they're at. And I think Maya and Jen touched on this as well, you know, as you know, journalists covering the climate, that can be a very tricky thing because it has such a polarized um, political situation, um, unfortunately. Um, but Kim, I wanted to stay with you. And, you know, we, we always hear about how union membership is down the last several decades and how it's down with low, it's especially low with younger age groups. I wonder if you think this conversation around climate within the labor movement, whether we're talking about, you know, the green tech industry or whether we're talking about, you know, organizing workers at some of the biggest polluters um, uh, in the in the world, um, do you think there's a chance, you know, to continue to foster the development of the the labor movement's consideration of climate justice by organizing younger workers? 
Definitely. I think we have an incredible opportunity right now because the younger generation have, I mean, so many young people are so much more politicized and aware and engaged than they were when even I was younger and I'm not that old, you know, just whether they're organizing around the climate specifically or around prisons or doing electoral work. There's a whole new generation of kids young people, not kids, who are paying attention, who actually want to change the world. And they, I mean, it's about time because my generation, everyone older than me, we didn't do a great job because look where we're at. (laughs) When it comes to labor specifically, I think the fact that younger folks are so much more engaged, it gives us a, a real opportunity to show that, you know, the kind of organizing you've been doing with your classmates or with your friends, with your coworkers at your job, like this this is, you know, we can do more with this. You can apply this to other sections of your politics and of your life because labor rights, workers' rights, they're human rights, they're civil rights, they're LGBTQ rights. Like they're every major, you know, every major advance that this country has made in spite of itself over the past what, however many years, a lot of that, there, there's been a labor component to that because the working class is it's all of us. We're everywhere. We're, we outnumber the bad guys, right? And I think showing younger people, like, here's a way you can get involved. Organizing your workplace is one of the most effective ways you can enact change and change material conditions for you and your coworkers and your friends. Like joining a union, organizing a union, or just organizing a group. Like, there are so many ways that people can get involved and so many lessons to be learned in building relationships and meeting people where they are. All the things we've been talking about about like this it's organizing a union at your workplace is a fantastic crash course and everything you really need to become an effective organizer and i'm really hopeful and really you know i'm really excited that this next generation is gonna hopefully have that opportunity and have the the fire to do that you know one a few months ago a man named cooper caraway who's barely in his 30s. He's an indigenous man. He's in South Dakota. And he was just elected the president of the statewide AFL-CIO. And he's very progressive. He's a radical. He is very aware of the climate crisis and how it's impacting his state and the indigenous folks in his state. And he's become a really incredible leader. And he's the kind of voice that is going to lead us forward. And we just need a whole bunch more Coopers. And honestly, that's the kind of leadership the movement needs. And the next generation watching this right now, you know, you're up. No pressure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Maya, I actually want to come back to you now, uh, because I know you talked about your background in organizing and how it influences your work and how you, you know, your relationship with a lot of young organizers is foundational to a lot of your reporting. I was wondering if you could, you know, give us some insight, sort of the same question I just asked Kim, but, you know, even beyond the labor context, um, you know, whether you see these sort of uh, uh, opportunities within climate justice work to, you know, organize against things, not just like capitalism and colonialism, but, you know, these broader forces that create the conditions where, you know, climate devastation becomes a reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, if we're having a roots-based approach to what the climate crisis is, I think that we can recognize where systems of oppression and injustice are showing up in our everyday and, and everything is 
deeply connected. I know that we keep coming back to it, but it really is. And so I think that if, you know, folks are tending to rights in the workplace, that's significant because it's also giving people the capacity to, to be able to then organize in their community. You know, if people are dealing with a housing crisis, that reduces the capacity of a community to then organize for protecting water and protecting the land from different forces that are threatening to destroy it. And so, and same thing with food security. And I think that because all of that is connected, it's the different ways that we can organize on best equipping ourselves to be well and what that means to be in community and in that space of being really nourished and having the capacity to then imagine beyond the confines of colonialism and capitalism and what our everyday society is that is so profoundly unjust we're able to have a stronger ability to then push beyond it and to challenge that status quo. And, you know, we saw that with the election with Biden, he was pushed incredibly hard by communities on the ground organizing. And we'll see how that manifests if it, you know, the traction that that can get, but it just goes to show what happens when people are challenging these limitations when people are able to provide that care for each other. And, um, and I think, and I always think too about what, uh, this well-known indigenous scholar Leanne Simpson has said, and she really emphasizes the importance of localized governance, localized food systems, um, a resurgence of community dependency and care, because it just, makes it where we have the resilience and the ability to mitigate the harms that we're people are already experiencing from extractivism and climate change and then able to continue to move forward with organizing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a fascinating framework to consider that from, especially with the explosion of mutual aid organizing we've seen in response to the pandemic. Um, and I think even that in some ways reminds me of, uh, you know, what happened in Puerto Rico after Maria um, with a lot of the communities down there, um, you know, building up resources for community-based care. Um, Jen, I want to turn to you and discuss, you know, we've been talking about the intersections of different systems of oppression. And, you know, specifically, there's a great piece in the book from Lincoln Anthony Blades, I believe, about environmental racism, you know, kind of what it is. And, um, you know, also, as as you said, like, we know, not just from the history of Martin Luther King Jr., but I think we saw last year um, with uh, the, the new wave of BLM protests, the, the connections between racism and economic hardship. And I think those same connections exist between environmental racism and yeah. economic hardship. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if, you know, specifically in light of, you know, last year's protests and this sort of wave of abolitionist energy around the prison industrial complex, you know, um, do you think, how do you, Think the, do you think there's a chance to kind of connect that to these issues of environmental racism and climate injustice? Absolutely. So, yeah, I absolutely want to give a nod to um, Lincoln Anthony Blaze's piece in the book. And I want to talk about it within a framework of neoliberalism. So I, I hate saying that word, but, you know, whatever. Um, so we live up underneath capitalism, yes. But we also have this kind of late stage capitalistic 
ethos of neoliberalism that it encourages essentially the abatement of social amenities and resources that help folks to survive. And this is, like Maya said, rooted in this idea of individualism, this kind of fierce individualism, and also thinking about what Kim has said, thinking about um, how folks are not encouraged to kind of own their own labor. The state is, is trying to own every unit of labor, and that means also owning people's personhood and citizenship. And so neoliberalism is, is a system that actually encourages private industry to kind of be the middle, the middle actor between um, the government and the people. And what it often ends up doing is that it, it creates these kind of uh, dependencies between communities, especially communities of color, folks at the margins, and the very uh, state actors that do the most harm to them. And so thinking about uh, neoliberalism and Flint, I want to talk about Flint mainly because um, you know, folks act like this issue in Flint emerged out of nowhere. And the fact of the matter is that when we first started hearing about Flint in 2012 and 2013, because folks who lived there were talking about it, um, folks were not explaining that this is actually an issue that goes back decades in places like Flint all over the country, that there have been choices that were made under these neoliberal governmental systems because it saved money and they thought it was more economical to use uh, filtration systems and uh, water processing factories that have been out of commission, that don't reach uh, EPA standards, and that have known associated risks with their use. And they choose to use them anyway because the communities that will be affected are communities that they don't think have any worth or any value, right? And so when we think about the organizing that we're seeing across the globe right now, a lot of what we're seeing is also kind of a response to the ways that these political choices have been made on behalf of communities um, that don't actually have, haven't had the control over things like their water resources. Um, this is happening in places like Oakland, California, and Baltimore. This is happening in Minneapolis, in Chicago, right? This is happening all over the country because just like in places like Flint, um, folks who are not invested in the livelihoods and the longevity of people in these communities are making decisions that are detrimental. Jen, we lost you, if you can still hear us. Um, I want to come back to that uh, whenever she is back. Are you there? Hey, there you are. I'm here. Can you okay. hear me? Yeah, I think okay. we lost you. I'm back. Yeah. Okay. Um, but what I was saying is also that uh, when we think about the, the organizing that's happening right now, um, we should definitely and absolutely put it in the context of the fact that um, the climate crisis is happening alongside a long history of um, the exclusion and the intentional repression of the rights of folks in communities that are not deemed of value and not of worth. We've seen this um, in uh, emergencies that arise like Hurricane Katrina, um, like Maria in, in Puerto Rico. I actually was in Puerto Rico a few days after Maria. Um, so like I saw that firsthand and thinking about um, when we had the 1995 heat wave in Chicago, we saw tons of folks who could have survived this crisis who didn't because the state didn't care about their lives. And so when we talk about environmental racism, it's really the kind of culmination of both the systemic factors of the state, um, not providing this, the security and the amenities uh, that they are supposed to guarantee to folks who live, who live here, but it's also alongside this idea that certain people have value and certain people have worth. This is why when we talk about Flint, we're not talking about the neighboring suburbs that are predominantly white who have water. 
right? Flint just got clean water um, and the effects of what happened in Flint will be felt for generations, right? We don't know what it's done for folks in terms of pregnancies and childbearing, um, what it's done for folks' long-term health. And so we don't talk about the the kind of secondary um, surrounding effects of understanding that this is a, a local thing because people make choices, right? People make choices about how they will or will not care for communities at the margins. And environmental racism is really kind of a term that helps us to understand that. So I, I think it's important that we always situate um, all these conversations in an interrogation of the state and the role of the state in our lives, because even though there is this kind of rigid individuality, the state encourages folks to be closer in proximity so that they can continue to extract, extract and extract, and then just kind of interchange and put someone else in that spot and then extract there too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I want to jump off of that same framework of, uh, you know, the state's role in this and throw to you, Maya, um, your great piece in the book with the activist explaining, you know, the overlap between climate justice and migrant justice. I wonder if you could just sort of give us, you know, the, the basics of what that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely love that piece because I learned so much from all the incredible women who I was able to interview and feature. And Maya Menezes, who is the first person featured in that interview, is an incredible organizer. And she brought out incredible points that if we're challenging capitalism and colonialism, as the roots of the climate crisis, then we inherently have to challenge borders because colonial borders are constructed to dehumanize people. And, you know, we're seeing what's happening right now with the migrant crisis, especially in the States. Goods can continue moving freely across borders, but people can't. People who are in dire situations who are really refugees, they're not able to move across borders. And it's just such an ultimate dehumanization is that the tools that borders serve, which really just further perpetuate the legacy of colonialism and capitalism, which has to dehumanize in order to function and thrive. And um, the other point that she made that I thought was really powerful is that no one is illegal on stolen lands. And that's just the absolute truth that needs to be recognized. And, um, and also that one of the things that I really stuck out to me when I was in the Arctic reporting on one of my Arctic pieces for Teen Vogue was when we were flying over the vast, um, Arctic tundra. And it was during the time of the caribou migrating to their calving grounds. And, we were just seeing thousands and thousands of caribou moving across the land. And it was this moment where, you know, we're hearing on the news about children in cages at the border. And then I'm witnessing a migration on the land that's completely unhindered in the way that it should be, which is just life moving through space to continue life and to continue thriving. The caribou are adjusting their migration route depending on the season, depending on when they're going to be giving birth. And I was thinking about the mothers and who were separated from their children in cages. The parallels are there. And I think it's important for us to recognize, especially within the environmental movement, is that, you know, what the life that people are seeking to protect on the land, whether that's 
you know, saving forests and different types of ecosystems, that's no different from mothers who are separated from their children and the need to be able to migrate freely and move across borders freely. And the other reality is that on average, since 2008, there's been over 26 million people who have been displaced because of climate crises. And that will only continue to intensify as the climate crisis worsens. And so, And for the most part right now, there's very little immigration policy that recognizes people who are refugees because of climate devastation. And so there really needs to be this multifaceted approach now to addressing the dehumanization of borders and the lack of, you know, functioning policy that creates space for people who need to seek refuge in in times of climate crisis. And also just recognizing that if the climate movement is seeking to uplift indigenous sovereignty and address capitalism and colonialism, then that means that people need to start recognizing that borders are a fallacy and that means abolishing ICE and starting to imagine a border-free world. Absolutely. And I think, you know, even connecting this back to the discussion of accountability we had earlier, when you talk about climate refugees and, you know, especially the fact that the industrial states um, often have the biggest role to play in, you know, causing the climate catastrophe. Um, But so many of these climate refugees come from countries and places where uh, that's that's not the case. They're not the leading polluters in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you said really about, um, you know, considering this as a global struggle and what that means for the concept of a nation uh, is a really fundamental sort of underlying, um, uh, you know, opportunity within climate justice um, is to, you know, really universalize a lot of these things and make tangible their impact on the world around us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so uh, I want to, um, you know, it, it's always really hard talking about climate stuff, right? It can be really depressing because we know what the trajectory looks like and um, we know how much needs to be done uh, to um, change it. So um, I wanted to give all of you a chance to sort of, you know, reflect on how you process that, um, you know, emotional baggage that comes with being realistic about the climate crisis and, you know, where you look for hope. Um, so Kim, I'd love to start with you. Um, well, I believe in the power of the working class, you know, right now I'm in Bessemer, Alabama, about a mile down the street from a huge Amazon warehouse where right now workers, predominantly black, predominantly women, are trying to organize and win what will be the first Amazon union in the entire country. And it's huge, huge deal. Like this is one of the poorest towns in Alabama and these workers who are dealing with the richest man in the world who I guess just kind of quit <laughs> I guess he's that scared. Well, he's he stepped down to stepped executive down chairman, so <laughs> I don't know how big of a step down that is. It's still fun. It's still fun. They're trying to just, dis- well, that's the thing. This giant corporation is trying to distract us from the fact that the workers who actually create all the value are standing up for themselves and saying, no, we've had enough of this. We deserve 
our fair share. You know, we don't want a slice of the pie. We want the whole damn bakery, which is what they deserve. And seeing that happen here, seeing these workers who are already so marginalized, dealing going up against this gigantic corporate behemoth, that gives me a lot of hope that, you know, we can replicate this on a bigger scale. Like we can go up against the oil and gas industry. We can tear down the lobbyists. We can force the generally useless government of this country to do what we want if we actually work together you know, general strikes are not just a fun hashtag. You know, we literally have a world to lose. And uh, just seeing seeing workers come together, seeing people come together and work collectively for the collective good, that that always, you know, that warms my heart. And it also, it, it's just inspiring and lovely. And I'm a little Pollyanna-ish about this stuff. I'm a labor reporter. It's been a weird year for everyone. But that's that's what really inspires me, seeing that, you know, seeing that we have accomplished so much we have so far to go and the deadline the clock is ticking and there's so much at stake but i believe that we can do it if we work together and if that's the pollyannish view then you know what's the alternative curling up in a ball and shaking i'd rather be a pollyanna about it yeah we're not doing doomerism on the on the skype call tonight um well, maya i'd love to hear from you next about how you know you sort of balance the the, the reality of despair and the necessity of hope mm-hmm. yeah i think that this is a super important question because everybody's mental health is really taking a toll with the pandemic and and then facing what's looming over that and behind that and around it, which is this climate crisis. And I think that um, we were just chatting about this in our pre-live conversation, but I was sharing that there's a mine that was just approved about 10 minutes from where I live that the community I live in has been advocating against and took it to the local Supreme Court. And we we lost. The community was told that we have no jurisdiction over the lands for the duration of the mine's operation. And it will impact our water. It will impact the salmon. It's going to clear cut forests. It's just absolutely devastating. And I was speaking with um, one of the people who are on the council here, and I was just grieving the news of this mine and really feeling like, should I just not fall in love with the land? Should I just stop falling in love with life and everything? Because there's so much loss right now. And especially with just how um, corporate abuse and these, these structures that function from such a place of greed and dehumanization just can continue steamrolling. And um, the council member, she just told me, you know, I would rather experience the fullest depth of love and then, and then have to navigate that fullest experience of grief. And it was really grounding and refreshing for me to hear that. And I just think um, it's so important to remember. And also Leanne Simpson has the indigenous writer and scholar. She has said sadness is a reason to act. And I think that, um, you know, we can still feel a sense of agency and collective power through our grief because it will always be a reason to act. And something that I've always felt in community and on the ground with reporting and writing about these different issues is that communities really have these, you know, never ending 
reserves of such a deep love for their place and for one another that far surpasses the 16-year lifespan of a mine. It far surpasses, you know, the corporate interest of pushing through a pipeline. It's like this is an intergenerational love that continues to be nurtured and fostered by all of us really working on these relationships and how to collectivize our movements and continue to repair and reconnect in community. And to me, I think that is just more enduring than any of these systems and structures that are causing so much harm. And so that really gives me reason to hope because there's always love. There's always a way to feel gratitude in our every single day. And so I think that we can still feel joy amidst the grief because the root of joy is gratitude and we're grieving because we're deeply in love and deeply grateful. Absolutely. Sometimes it's better to have loved and lost than never loved at all. Right. Jen, same question for you, this, this balancing act that comes with considering the reality of climate and trying to keep fighting for the better future when, you know, in certain some ways, a, a worse future seems certain. Yeah, and also, I'm sorry, I disappeared from our beautiful uh, step thing that we're sitting in. Uh, <laughs> I'm in the winter storm, and it just knocked my internet out. Um, so I really, really love y'all's responses, and I was actually going to say also gratitude, and I'll, I'll 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 get there, but in a different way. The first thing I want to say is just thinking about young people. You know, I'm a mother of three young people. And um, the crisis, the COVID crisis has put me in very close proximity to them for the past year, um, just sitting in the house with them every single day. And I have a lot of hope, you know, when I see my children and I think about future generations and what they're coming up in and with and the way that they are engaging with the world. Um, I also have the honor of being a professor and teaching young people every day and um, just the the ideas and the political imagination that I see among young people and the way that they envision the world gives me so much hope for the future. And that's, I think, one of the places I get hope from. The other is a source of gratitude for me. And I think, you know, I've moved across the country. I'm from Oakland, California. I've lived in LA. I've lived in Chicago. And now I'm living in Syracuse, New York, in on Onondaga lands. And I feel closer to the earth than I ever have before. Um, I feel very sensitive and grounded here. And I feel like I've kind of come in contact with my ancestors and I'm learning more about uh, the land and just nature and things like that. And I think we can find a lot of hope in nature. I think that it's these conversations can be hard because we spend so much time talking about the loss, but we don't talk enough about the abundance and we don't talk about what we have. We have each other, we have our communities and we look outside of our windows and we still have what we have here. We still have so much greenery. We still have so much earth. We have air, we have water, you know, we're breathing, we're here together. And I'm, I'm learning in this time of immense loss and immense grief, um, to heal myself through, through trying to heal the earth and trying to heal others. And sometimes that's just stepping outside barefoot and putting my feet in the dirt and feeling the ground under my feet and getting grounded, you know, and feeling gratitude that I can do that. Um, and I think that we should take more stock of what we have and being present in our bodies and being present in the spaces that we have. And that's a way we can stop, you know, thinking only about the loss and the grief, because absolutely those are important things and we have to work through them. But we also have to be present in our minds and bodies so that we can, you know, 
love ourselves and love others and do justice to ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is so much of it emotionally is wrapped up in a sense of place and finding, you know, the where for our life to unfold. Um, I want to turn now and take some questions from the viewers. Um, if you're watching still and you want to uh, uh, submit any questions, you should be able to do that. I think they um, gave you a little informational video now. But so I'll start with this one from, uh, sorry for the pronunciation on this, but um, uh, great, great. Um, they want to know how do you navigate the relationship between sort of the planetary nature of climate change and its impact in local activism? So, you know, how do we make these connections between the sort of local grassroots community work and the need to address these systemic global forces? Um, you know, how, how do we bridge that gap? Um, anybody want to chime in? I can chime in. I was just having a conversation with one of my friends about this yesterday because we have commune plans now at this point in the apocalypse. <laughs> but um, we were we were talking about how it's it's kind of feeling like whack-a-mole at this point with the different fights that are going on, trying to stop a pipeline here, but then 32 permits are approved there. And it's just this constant, exhausting battle of what feels like harm reduction instead of, you know, in, in the tension of the urgency and the time that it takes to do legal challenges and the time that it takes to organize and everything. And, and I really do think that the local doesn't need to be in tension with the global, um, in terms of these crises that we're experiencing and, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier with when communities have stronger resilience together, like community relationships are stronger, there's redistribution going on, there's stronger reciprocity, um, there's stronger local governance and jurisdiction, people are better resourced together. Um, I think that that will translate to these larger levels and ripple out, you know, for example, with the tar sands in Canada, it's the largest um, crude oil deposit in the world. And it's a huge industrial project. And that's the, that's the source. That's like the head of the snake. And, and if those local communities had the jurisdiction to say no to, you know, thousands of different development projects that are happening in that region, that would spell out victory and impact for the rest of the world. And it's just like how one, you know, one success in one area, it can show another community how to do it themselves. And so I think that, you know, we should also give credit to just how interconnected we all are and how important um, each milestone really is. And in that by focusing on creating resiliency and all those different dimensions that it means to be within community, I really do believe it can translate onto a local scale. I mean, a global scale. Right. Like when you're organizing anything, a project, a group, an action, a union, it all starts with that first conversation one on one. 
You, you, you talking to another person and then talking to some more people and talking to more people and building out those relationships and building that community and that network. Like even if you're just from a small town and you are, you want to get clean water or you want to protect the park or you want to, there's so many, like if you want to do like a smaller project, right? You can do it and then you can network with other people in bigger communities or communities that are away and build it out into like a spider web. You know, it's, it feels very David and Goliath a lot of the time doing this kind of thing, but it starts with one stone, right? It starts with one spark. And honestly, that's, I mean, you, yeah, sure, one person can change the world, but a lot of people working together can do it a lot quicker. Yes. So you have to start, you know, start those conversations, start that one-on-one and just let it bloom. So I'm going to add one really small thing because I agree 100%. Um, but I think that we get really caught up in the idea that our work has to have this huge global impact and we need to get a Nobel Peace Prize. And, you know, and we start, we read a book one time and we're like, now we've got to go and I've got to end poverty and world hunger. So no, you don't, right? Like starting at home is, is good, right? Starting in your network, in your community is important. And we've seen a lot with recent crises that have happened. Um, I'm thinking specifically after George Floyd was murdered, we saw folks rushing in to Minneapolis to try and support, you know, folks there. And they ended up overwhelming people. They were inundated, right? Um, You can do the work. You can organize at home. You can join movements that are happening in your community. And I guarantee you that you will have more expert knowledge in your own community in the places where you've grown up and you've been and you work and you sleep and you eat every day than you will by hopping on the road or on a plane and trying to go solve an issue in a brand new place you've never been before. So I would say, please absolutely start at home. Start there. Definitely. What's that old saying? Think globally, act locally. Uh-huh. That's a good one. Um, this next question comes from Nicholas, and it's sort of in a similar uh, theme here. Um, Nicholas asks, can the convergence of coalitions across crises be successful, or is it a waste of emotional and organizational labor? Um, somebody want to just take a did somebody, did somebody want to field that um is there a way to maybe rephrase that i'm not entirely yeah. sure it's asking is it yeah i think like attacking diff- like kind of working together across different like labor stuff and climate stuff and civil rights stuff like what are we because everything's connected right like right yeah i'm not really sure what the person is asking um, I mean, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, obviously, but I think, you know, uh, it, there's a temptation sometimes to think that convergence and coalition building can be um, a distraction or its own um, sort of oris boros. So maybe a different way to think about this is, you know, do you have insight into how we should approach situations when coalition building gets tricky? Um, you know, oh. it's inevitable in the process of organizing that there are going to be difficult conversations. There can be conflict. Um, so, you know, how do we make space for that and think about, you know, how to bring these justice mindsets, justice-based mindsets to those difficult conversations? I'll chime in. 
<laughs> on coalitions. I'll chime in on coalitions um, as an intersectionality scholar. Um, and I'll say that when we think about coalitions and uh, the work of climate justice and environmental racism, I think what I think coalitions absolutely can work are very important and it's possible. But what I also think in this moment is that folks who find themselves um, working to be uh, allies, uh, co-conspirators, advocates. I don't know all the terms that people are using for basically being good people and doing the right thing right now, but those folks um, who often see themselves as not as affected or as outside of the problem and think that they are going out somewhere to help people um, and give back. All right, so those folks um, are often the ones who make coalitions very hard. And so what I will say is that coalitions have to come from a place of a genuine comradeship and a mutual uh, care and mutual aims to get to the same ending. And if it isn't about centering those most vulnerable, if it isn't about ensuring that those who are the most harmed and most affected have what they need to survive, then it's not an effective coalition and it won't sustain itself. Totally, totally. Anyone else want to jump off that idea? I think that's a really fascinating, especially as we've been talking about colonialism, um, you know, this idea of almost climate missionary work that uh, you can drop in, parachute drop in somewhere where you don't have any connections and try to save people. Um, I feel like, you know, if we're if we're going to make serious, meaningful resistance to colonialism, you know, we have to think about building coalitions locally and how we actually approach these existing organizations and communities when they're in peril. Um, great. Um, so it looks like this next question is from my mom. Hi, mom. Thanks for tuning in. Um, and this comes from uh, my sister, Helen, as well. Um, so she's asked, and actually I'll plug my mom's book as well uh, right here. It's called Ailing in Place, and um, it's Environmental Inequities and Health Disparities in Appalachia. So um, this is a bit of a family business for me. Um, Lucy, I love that so much. <laughs> oh my God, I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, it's actually really thrilling for me and my mom to have a book come out at the same time, if you can believe it. Um but she asks, uh, can you speak to the interface of climate justice work and public health, especially in light, I think, of the pandemic and a renewed focus on public health that we've seen this last couple of years? Um, does anybody want to take that first? Well, yeah, I would just say, I'm not as, you know, oh, I would definitely defer to these two more. But even just thinking about destroying the planet, is you're destroying the environment as, you know, writ large, but you're also destroying people's individual environments, individual towns and cities and neighborhoods, whether that's, you know, by spilling toxic chemicals or destroying their water. Or I was just reading a great new book, actually. Um, called Milltown, a woman who grew up in the small town in rural Maine, where eventually the town gained the uh, the moniker of Cancer Valley because it was downriver from a paper mill. And the environmental devastation, it wasn't just tearing up the trees and messing with the earth, it was getting into people's bodies. And so there are already so many communities across the world, across the country that have been weakened and decimated by this kind of environmental 
destruction, environmental racism, environmental carelessness, that when something like a pandemic comes along, people are already trying to struggle, like struggle along and survive, like without having to, to deal with all that. Like they're already, they've already been knocked back because their environment has been so damaged. And now we're in a situation here where there's so many communities that lack those resources and lack that kind of strength that comes with living in a place where you're, you feel okay, where you're not actively being poisoned, you know, like, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not as eloquent as, as my co-panelists, but yeah, essentially destroying the environment means it's not just all the trees and the earth and the water. It's like your backyard and the garden where you grow food for your kids and, you know, the air that you're breathing on your way to work. Like it all, it's all connected. It's all very interconnected. And as usual in this country, the people that are already left behind, that are already marginalized, are already harmed, are getting hit the hardest during public health crises and just day to day trying to survive in this place. Okay, Maya. Um, yeah, I agree with all that wholeheartedly. And um, I was actually just interviewing earlier today before this event, um, a young woman named Daphne, who's 22, and she's now working with the Biden administration on their climate response. And she's an amazing, inspiring advocate for disability rights being addressed within climate action. And she's also going to med school at the same time, too. And she was just saying how the climate crisis is a public health crisis. And it's so important to also address the dimensions of um, of ableism that really exists in the way that people are thinking about climate solutions and, and also even perceiving the depths of hardship that's happening with a climate crisis. And, you know, one of the examples that Daphne shared uh, during our conversation today was that when all the wildfires were happening in California, a lot of people who rely on machinery and different, you know, types of infrastructure or equipment just to breathe or have any sort of mobility, those things perished in the fires. And it was extremely devastating and incredibly challenging just to survive. And so I think that um, that uh, disability awareness is super essential to be a part of the dialogue around public health. And, and the other fundamental piece to it is that we are the land. We are the water. We are not separate from it. And that is one of the functioning ideologies of capitalism and colonialism is that we are separate. And so what we're doing to impact our watersheds, we're impacting ourselves. When we're logging the forest, we're impacting our own lungs. When when we are having soil that's degraded to the point where people are saying that it will threaten the stability of food very quickly, that's threatening ourselves. We're not maximizing the nutrients from food that's grown and soil that's not thriving. And so everything is completely connected and the well-being of ourselves from the well-being of the environment is also how we withstand global health crises. And we're seeing that play out right now with the pandemic. And and also just recognizing that this pandemic was perpetuated by environmental destruction and deforestation. And so these intersections must be made that destroyed environments create public health crises. Definitely. Well said. Um, 
Okay, we have another question here from Jamie Gorman. Um, could the panels could the panel speak more about the relationship between reporting slash research and organizing? Um, how can they work together to address barriers to being heard? Um, Maya, I feel like you had a lot of eloquent things to say about this earlier. Do you want to field this one first? Yeah, definitely. I think that um, people who, you know, have a gift of expression and writing and and have that ability to be doing research and have the relationships with media and being able to use that, um, they have a responsibility to leverage the voices and leverage the stories and the testimonies and what communities are experiencing and going through and also what communities are fighting for. And so um, all of the, the pieces that I've written and hope to continue writing for, for as long as I can are always done in a way where my priority is the community, that it will serve as the ultimate amplification and the ultimate tool to coincide with their justice and to coincide with what they are fighting for. And I'm pretty, it's just pretty clear that those are the ethics of reporting on these stories. And, um, and I think that it's really important to just leverage resources and privilege and networks to help folks amplify the narrative that they need to have out there and to really have um, their experiences heard and to be seen and to be validated by being accessible in this public way. Absolutely. Kim, Jen, any thoughts on um, how reporting and organizing can work together to address barriers to being heard? Well, I have a lot of thoughts about reporting on on uh, topics that I'm close to and that I've organized around. First, I mean, I think personally that objectivity is a myth made up by privileged white dudes to make sure that their worldview remains the dominant one. So I'm not interested in pretending to be objective. And when it comes to, I mean, everything that Maya said was incredible and I could not say it any better. Um, just thinking of oneself as if you're a journalist, you're someone who has a public platform in some way, using that, pl that platform is a privilege and using that platform as a way to pass the mic and serve as a microphone yourself for these stories of people who are impacted by these issues. Like that's, that's the most important thing you can do. Like, I don't think as a writer, you're, you're very seldom the story, but allowing people space to tell their own stories and to get their perspectives out there when they may not necessarily be valued or listened to otherwise, like that is, you know, a, beautiful job it's a beautiful task and i'm so glad that people like us get to do this because for whatever reason people listen to me sometimes and i know why they listen to y'all so it's just yeah i i think i'm getting a little rambling at this point but there's i, I think that reporting and research and organizing is all part of a bigger goal of sharing these perspectives and building out communities and helping to use whatever privileges we have for the greater good and can totally. I add one oh. point in there too, is that um, I think when it comes to reporting and organizing and, and where those are more fluid and combined is also within practices of consent and what we talked about later or earlier with relational accountability. When I have worked with community members who have been 
so wary and hesitant of trusting any media because their stories are constantly misreported. And the way that they became misreported was because there were no consent practices throughout the reporting and throughout the writing and throughout the publishing. And it takes more time. It takes more effort to do things in a good way. And I think that, um, People who are writing these stories, you must be accountable and you must be responsible to doing it in a good way. Otherwise, it just simply is unethical journalism and it's not an appropriate practice. And I've heard from community members who who told um, a reporter this happened very recently. You got the nuances wrong with how you are identifying and labeling different indigenous communities and their perspective on this issue, and it will incite lateral violence. You cannot publish this. And the person went ahead and published it the next day, even though they had received that message. And so, um, you know, this stuff happens all the time. And I think that if you're, um, if your ethics are really in the right place and if you're asking yourself and checking in, why am I reporting on the story? What is my real intention here? And if it's not to be in alignment with those whose stories you are using, then you need to ask yourself if that really is a story that you should be telling. Absolutely. I think that's a brilliant insight into the sort of capitalist superstructure of the media, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as, as Kim was saying, um, you know, as journalists, often our platforms make or break our careers. And so trying to use that responsibly is really tricky. And, you know, the flip side of that is that, um, unfortunately, a lot of traditional journalism runs on what's fundamentally an extractive model, right, of pulling the stories out of communities instead of engaging communities in storytelling. Um, Jen, did you want to weigh in on this question at all? Yeah, and my computer gave me a blue screen death. I wanted to weigh in on the last one, too. So I want to, like, smush the answer together because I think that um, you all have done a great job. And I, so so what I want to say first is that it's our job as, as journalists um, to tell the truth. <laughs> and um, I, I hate that I have to constantly I've been saying this for so long, and I'm like, I, I have to keep saying it, that our job is not to get the clicks. It's not to have the platform. It's not to be popular. It's not even to be liked. Our job is to tell the truth. And I'm really like disheartened and disappointed that we still see telling the truth as radical. Like I, I, the term radical truth telling, I can understand it theoretically, but it stresses me out. It wears me out, right? Because telling the truth should not be radical. Um, and I say that in, in, in concert with what I was going to say about the last question about public health, um, is that when we know a thing is a thing, we have to call it a thing, right? So a public health crisis um, there are many public health crises that we are confronting and segregation is a public health crisis, right? This is why we know that organizers, uh, especially black organizers, I think about Charles Hamilton Houston, who was a um, professor at Howard Law, who actually trained Thurgood Marshall. And his work on segregation was not just about proving to white people that it was bad, but actually showing the conditions that folks were living in. And it was a public health issue. People often associate racial segregation with just education, but it was his work acting as a lay reporter 
going into communities and taking pictures and teaching folks how to do this work to say, hey, like when you say separate but equal, I want you to see what you mean. I want you to actually see what you mean by separate but equal. And that's how we get into to, to segregation, right? And so unfortunately, that was a radical truth telling. It's the same kind of work that Ida B. Wells did with regards to lynching, you know? And Unfortunately, it's been communities at the margins who often have to do this work because the the mainstream NYTs of the world were not the ones. No shade, no shade. I just feel like on a Teen Vogue conversation talking shit about NYT. Um, but I'm just talking about history. I'm just talking about history because we can read the headlines ourselves. But you know that they, they were not the ones doing the radical truth telling. And what I'm trying to say about that is that. You know, if we are really trying to see a world or create a world that we actually believe can be different, we want to build a world around us where folks actually can live and survive in their bodies, in the communities where they live. We as reporters and journalists have to first be honest with ourselves about what we're, what, t- what truths we're telling. And if our concern is about getting recognized in that thing or on that list, that 30 under 30 thing, or like getting that verification on Instagram or whatever it might be, or if our concern is about being honest and authentic and consistent, right? That these are our duties, in my opinion. And unfortunately, um, we don't do it well. We don't do it well. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I would just add to that that we should acknowledge that when we're working within a capitalist media, we know that the forces are going to privilege capital over communities. And we see that time and again, and it complicates the truth in big ways when we talk about the climate. Um, Well, I want to thank you all so much for joining me tonight and give you the chance to offer any final thoughts um, as we get ready to close out here. This is great. Thank you so much for having this conversation, having us on, being a phenomenal moderator, doing this book, giving us a platform. Like, this is great. And I appreciate any opportunity to engage with, you know, people like you and people like you watching. (laughs) Same. I mean, I want to say thank you. And also, I'm really glad we're having this conversation right now. I think that folks came out of the inauguration and there was a lot of um, on the on the Twitters and on the internet, there's a lot of collective sighs of relief. Oh, we're free now. Everything's fine. And I'm like, bro, we have so much work to do. We have so much work to do. And so I just am really glad that we're continuing these conversations and that we're continuing them in a way that that is honest and is meant to push us forward to a better place as opposed to the kind of, you know, patting ourselves on the back as typical folks do, the liberals. I'm trying to be not liberal, be radical. So I appreciate y'all. Thank you, Lucy, for putting this together. I'm so grateful. And I'm just always inspired by these conversations. I feel like we will continue to feel more empowered by having critical conversations. It's helping us understand the issues. And so then we can think of the solutions. And I just think creating space to really come together and just be in dialogue with one another around these topics is just so nurturing, especially in these times. So thank you for putting this together, even though we can't be physically celebrating the launch of this book. 
Well, thank you all again so much for joining me for your insights and your answers tonight and all of the work that you've done for us. Um, the book is No Planet B, a Teen Vogue guide to the climate crisis. Um, I don't know if it'll show up, um, but uh, pub date is next Tuesday, February 9th. You can get it now on haymarketbooks.org. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight, and I uh, hope to see everyone again soon. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.